Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Let me pray for us one more time before we dive into God's Word. I'm excited to dive into week two of a new series on the Gospel of John. Um, And I would just ask that you would pray with me before we jump in. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, right now we, we pray, I pray, Lord, that you would help me as I preach your word to be clear, to be helpful, to, to serve those in this room with the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of the gospel. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you were here with us last week, you know we kicked off a new series that we are calling Iconic. And the reason we're calling it Iconic is because it's about the most iconic figure in human history, the man Jesus Christ. Look, there have been a lot of famous, there have been a lot of notorious, there have been a lot of icons throughout human history that have shaped the course of history in one way or another. But as you begin to look at the influence of Jesus's life, as you begin to sort of peel back the curtain, step back and realize that this obscure Jewish carpenter from a small little town in Nazareth literally changed the course of human history to the degree that he did. In comparison, there is no one even close, whether you're an atheistic historian or a Christian historian, no one even close to the impact and influence of Jesus Christ. Not even close. And so whether you're here today searching out this whole idea of Christianity for the first time or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it would do you good to learn a little more about him, to understand who he was, what what his message was all about, who he claimed to be, and what the meaning and purpose of his life was. And that's what this series is about. And we are... We are looking at the life of Jesus through the gospel of John. And I, I want to I read this verse for us because John, the gospel of John, John wrote the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all gave accounts of the life of Jesus. They, they felt compelled by what they had seen him do and by the fact that he rose from the dead and appeared to them in person, they felt compelled to tell the story of Jesus's life. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote down their accounts of Jesus's life. And and John, at the very end of his gospel, he says this in chapter 20. He goes, I want to tell you guys why I wrote this. He's giving us some insight into the greater story of his gospel. And he goes, Here's what he says in in verse 30 and 31. He says, the disciples, him included, they saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in the book, in this book that I just wrote for you. He goes, there's a lot more that we saw Jesus do. But these are written, I chose these specifically, that's what John is saying, so that you may believe 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life. You will have life by the power of his name. Friends, there are many theologians that have referred to the gospel of John as the gospel of life. The gospel of life, because at the end of the day, Jesus is not just concerned with, with fixing the negative problems in all of our lives. Jesus is not just concerned with addressing the negative issues that we realize and that we can see and feel on this earth. Jesus is concerned about you experiencing abundant life, having a meaning for living, a joy and a purpose to your life that's above and beyond anything that your life can contain without him. So Jesus is here so that you may have life. Some of you in the room may be thinking, well, I'm here today, Pastor John. They're like, I'm breathing right here. I think I have life. Well, yeah, physically you're alive. But we know there is so much more to life, to the meaning of life, to the purpose of why we were created than just physically being here in the room today the gospel of life. And so John says, look, I was very strategic about what I included in the story of Jesus's life. I put these things in order as best as I could remember, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe every word, every word of scripture is inspired by God and true. And John is saying to everyone who reads this, I wrote this so that you would believe you would come to believe what I have come to believe and who Jesus is and that you would have life by believing. And so that's what we're diving into. That's a bit of the backstory and purpose of the gospel of John. Now, John, in his strategic presentation of Jesus's life, he starts in chapter one with some things that we looked at last week, but then in chapter two, he records the story of Jesus's first miracle. Jesus's first miracle. And, you know, I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, with every iconic figure in human history, there was that moment where they kind of broke onto the scene, right? You know, the Beatles' first hit song, suddenly they're on the international, you know, map. They're on the international stage. People are beginning to discover who they were. Um, recently, I started watching a documentary about David Beckham on Netflix, and, uh, you know, it's a fascinating documentary, but one of the things they talk about, they start the documentary by giving us a little bit of context for, hey, how did David Beckham become David Beckham? Yeah, he was a phenomenal soccer player. But where was, where was the moment? What was the exact moment that, that put him on the radar for all of us? And, and they all agree, they show this moment in the documentary. It's this, this moment where sort of this, you know, this cocky young kid starts playing for Manchester United. He gets the call up from Bush Leagues. He gets the call up, and before the game, the, the manager, the coach of the team, they, they see this kid at the, the midfield line taking shots on the goal. Just, just gearing up and taking shots from the 50-yard, like the midfield point of the, the soccer field. 
And the coach looks at the other coach, the assistant manager, and he says, you know, um, if he tries that in the game, we're sitting him. We're pulling him out. We are, we are not, ha that is ridiculous. It's showboaty. It's selfish. Who's going to try and, you know, make a shot from midfield? It's a waste. It's a waste of a possession, right? If he tries it, we're pulling him. Okay. Beckham gets put in the game. What do you think he does? He sees the goalie off the line. There, there's, there are literally, friends, no one has ever done this. No one has actually made a half-field shot in history before, okay? That's what they're talking about in the documentary. Pele tried it once. He missed. No one's ever done it. Beckham's like, one of his first games at Manchester United, he's dribbling up to the midfield line, sees the goalie off his line, and he rips it. Just cranks it, okay? Catches the goalie off his line, and he scores. Back net, literally, the goalie jumps, tries to stop it, doesn't even, it just barely grazes the bottom of the crossbar, goes in, the place goes nuts. They go wild. And the assistant manager looks at the coach, he goes, you want to bench him now? <laughs> we can't bench this kid now, he, he made it. You know, and that was the moment where Beckham became Beckham. Everyone remembers him for that shot. I mean, I, I, love, I love what one of the guys said. How can you forget that 60-yard goal? He tried it about 10 minutes before the game. I said to my assistant, this is what I shared just a second ago, Brian Kidd, if he tries that in the game, he's off. And at that time, David was getting, you know, Beckham was getting carried away a bit. You're always trying to keep his feet on the ground, keep his head from getting too big. But when the goal goes in, Kiddo turns to me and says, you take him off. I love that. So this is Jesus's entrance. This is his moment. This is how he decides to break on the scene. And you'll see here in the story, he's a bit resistant to it at first. John chapter 1 to 11, the verses will be on the side screen. I want to read this for us and you can follow along. Listen to this story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, you know, kids in the room, do not address your mother like that, okay? <laughs> Understand that title, woman, it was not a, you know, I think I've actually preached wrong on this verse in the past. That was not in any way a discriminatory word in the Greek or the Hebrew. It was just a way of saying like madame or miss or ma'am, you know, but it's translated just accurately into English, woman. Doesn't have the same context as today. Don't try that with your mom. Okay, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You gotta love the confidence of Mary in that moment. Now there were six stone water jars. They're Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, 
though the bridegroom, um, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Friends, the very first miracle that Jesus chose to come on the scene is this idea of, is this reality of turning water to wine. And the title of my message today, if you're taking notes, is simply this. I wish I would have put Jesus in front of this, but Jesus, the life of the party. That's the idea. He's the life, the soul, the joy of the party. And I want to unpack that idea for us from this story. But there's three things that we're going to look at in this story. First is the sign, why he did what he did, what that represents. The second is the wedding. Why at a wedding? What's the, what's the meaning, significance of that? And thirdly, I, I want to look at this reality that for his very first miracle, he chose to turn water to wine. Why that? Why would he do that? Now, read, as we looked at last week, as you read the first two chapters of John, you notice, and we, we saw this correlation last week, you notice John is very specifically drawing correlations to Genesis chapter 1. In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it starts with these three words, in the beginning. And then if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it starts in the same way, in the beginning. Now, John is doing that on purpose, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But if you look at the very first verses of this um, story, here's what it says. It says, on the third day, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Friends, John wrote this. After Jesus had risen from the dead, after the, the story and the message of Jesus was getting out to everyone, John wrote this knowing that the first hearers of this message would already have heard the fact that the Christians, those who believed in Jesus, they believed that he rose from the dead on the third day. He's, he's using that phrase on purpose. It's the same phrase he uses when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead at the end of the gospel. But then again, go back to chapter one and you see all these correlations. Verse one, in the beginning. Verse 19, on the next day. Verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. If you add up the days, one, two, three, four, plus three. Y'all following? I know this is like heavy math right now. Here we go. Four plus three, seven. What happened on the seventh day of creation? God rested from all of his work. So John is setting up context. We're looking for clues in the text here. Last week, we saw some amazing clues with the word logos. I encourage you to go back and look at that. But here, he's setting this, this miracle, this first sign up in such a way. He's saying, not only is it happening on day number seven, and I've already given you the context of the new creation through Jesus, 
But it's happening on the third day after he's been in Cana of Galilee. Those two references are speaking to two things that John is saying, this sign is so important. It represents resurrection, new life. It represents some form of new life that Jesus has come to give. And it also somehow represents the shalom, the peace of God that he longs to give all of us, the restoration of all things. Somehow, the miracle that Jesus does at this wedding feast, turning water to wine, John is saying, this is representative. Look, I'm, he says, I wrote this so that you would believe that Jesus is not just a man like any other man, that what he came to do was not just, you know, give us some good teachings and tell us to clean up our lives a little bit. No, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he came to rescue the world from sin and death. He came to destroy sin by dying the death we deserved on the cross and then rising from the dead so that by faith in him, we could have new life. That's why he came. And so John says, look, I want to make it loud and clear from the very beginning of the gospel this, what, who we're dealing with here is not some normal, normal iconic figure in human history. Who we're dealing with here is God himself in human flesh. In fact, you know, one of the, one of the teachings of Christianity that gets attacked a lot is this whole idea of the Trinity, this idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is, God is three persons in one. We worship one God who has three expressions. He has shown himself to us in three ways. God the Father, whom no eye has seen. God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is represented to us as God's Son, but is fully God, equal with the Father, one with the Father. And then God the Holy Spirit. John, if anybody ever asks you, you know, why do Christians believe that? That's confusing. Yeah, it is confusing. I understand that. Uh, you know, that's a tricky one. But we don't believe Jesus was just a son of God like you and I are sons and daughters of God. We believe he was the unique fullness of God in human form. And that's what John says in verse 18. He goes, look, uh, no one has ever seen God the holy uncreated God. And then he says this, the only God who is at the Father's side. Wait, hold on, what? The only God who is at the Father's side, he, which is Jesus, has made him known. Do you realize what he just called Jesus? The only God. He goes, no one's ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side, he made him known to us. Again, this is a massive claim that John is making on who Jesus is as a person. So that's the context of the sign. On the third day and on the seventh day, somehow this sign is connected to new life, and it's connected to the shalom, the peace of God, the things that all of us are looking for deep down. 
Lord, I want to know life. Where is life found? Where is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Lord, where, where do I find this peace that seems to elude me? I'm searching for it in all these places, but I just haven't found it yet. And so John is setting us up for those two things. The second thing, so first the sign, the second, the wedding. Thought a lot about this, right? Doesn't it strike you that of all the miracles John could have chosen to start with, he chose this one. I mean, think about it. Later, he's going to talk about Lazarus being raised from the dead. I mean, we, we're going to hear about Jesus feeding 5,000 people, materializing bread and fish from nothing. Pretty sweet. Uh, we're going to hear about Jesus walking on water, calming storms, casting out demons, healing blind, leprous, lame people. There, Look, Jesus was like a one-hit wonder, okay? As an iconic figure, he wasn't like Chumbawamba in the 90s. Anybody remember that? I get knocked down. Man, I probably shouldn't. You know, that was like my, that was my jam in the 90s, right? There were a couple one-hit wonders in the 90s, and they're like, Where'd the, what happened? Where'd they go? Eagle-eyed chair saved tonight. Not in the break. Oh, no. Yeah, y'all know. I'm not going to sing it. Um, one-hit wonders, right? One and done. John, John was like, look, I had a massive list to pull from. I'm going to share some of those miracles later. And of all the ones that he could have chosen to start his gospel with, he chooses this one. I'm like, look, John, Jesus has been dealing with some very big issues in, in his miracles, right? He shows up and heals a man born blind from birth. That's, I mean, he's solving a major problem there. You know, there, there's a moment where he multiplies bread and he feeds those who are hungry. It's like, John, really like the, at worst, the problem that Jesus is solving here is the shame, the social shame, the embarrassment that would have been felt by the bridegroom and the bride and their families, specifically the bride's family. It, it kind of feels like, man, John, of all the stories you could have started with, of all the miracles, why this one? And I think it's very important to understand why a wedding. Think about these verses in Isaiah 62. It says, for the Lord delights in you. I don't know what you've heard about God. I don't know what your church background is. I don't know what you believe about the creator of the universe, but he delights in you. And your land, he's speaking not just to Israel, but to honestly all the people to follow who would believe in Jesus. Your land shall be married, not forsaken. That's the context. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you know the Bible begins and ends with a wedding? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then Revelation 22, the picture of the return of Christ and the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the fact that a wedding, a marriage, the most intimate of human relationships, the most loving and committed bond known to humanity, that is the picture that God wants impressed on our minds and our hearts of how he wants to relate to us. 
He's not looking for a bunch of servants to run around and check the boxes and follow all the rules. He wants a relationship with you because he loves you and he delights in you. And it's absolutely on purpose that on the seventh day and after the third day he's in Canaan that he does this miracle at a wedding. Don't miss that. As a pastor, um, one of my favorite parts of my job is I get to perform weddings. I've done a lot of weddings in my time in ministry. And, you know, I've done weddings in really beautiful, massive cathedrals and churches where there are hundreds of people in the room in attendance. And I'll never forget a few years ago, I did, I did a whole string of weddings during COVID. <laughs> a little different, okay? Um, it was wild because, especially in the height of COVID, Many people who had been engaged or they had set wedding dates, they were excited about getting married. And now it's like, gosh, I can't, I can't rent that place. That place is shut down. We still want to get married. We got a wedding date. And I remember doing weddings in backyards and outside. I remember doing a wedding under the oak trees off Silva Valley Road by the library. And it was this amazing young couple and literally the only people there were the parents and the bride and the groom and maybe one or two other siblings. That was it, and me. And my wife, Lindsay, she took photos. <laughs> She's like, I'll be your wedding photographer today. And I just remember there's one consistent thing and it was so special because even, even during the COVID weddings where, gosh, you don't really have the luxury of a big facility where the bride's getting ready and the groom's getting ready. And then, you know, the bride, there's a big reveal moment where the music starts in the crescendo and she comes down the aisle. You don't get that at all, right? <laughs> We're outside under an oak tree by the road. There's nowhere to really hide or to have this big entrance, but every single time... They, we, we all tried to figure out a creative way where the groom would not see the bride until that moment. And whether that meant, okay, she was going to be, you know, dropped off in a car right there, and then she would walk around this way, or it meant the groom was going to turn with his back to where she was coming from until the moment when she would walk down the aisle or the leaves or whatever was there, <laughs> literally. And... One of the things that I love to do is I always just love to, as she comes down the aisle, just to glance over at the groom's face. And I have, I've done a ton of weddings with a ton of people and with no people. And there is one consistent theme that I have seen in every single wedding I've done. The moment the groom sees her for the first time, he either lights up, his eyes fill with tears. There's this moment, you can just see it on his face, of pure joy, of pure delight, of just, oh my, that's my bride, right? In fact, if I didn't see that look on his face, I'd be like, all right, time out, everybody. We need a second here, okay? I gotta make sure this guy's okay. Like, this is a big moment. It's the beginning of your life together. If there's not a sense of joy on your face when you see your bride, okay, we, gotta, we just need to have one more conversation before we go through with these vows. But I've never seen that. Every single time, it's just joy or tears or delight. And friends, this is the very picture 
that God wants you to have when, he, when you think about him and your relationship with him through Jesus Christ. In the same way a bridegroom rejoices, delights over his bride on the wedding day, that is how God feels about you. Men in the room, I know that might be a tough analogy to like hang on to. But if you're married, you know the feeling that you had on that day. And God does not want us just living a life following the rules. He wants us to enter into relation. He wants to restore relationship with us through Jesus Christ. Friends, one of, one of my favorite authors, writers, philosophers, a guy named Blaise Pascal, I've shared this quote with you before, but it's so important. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever means they employ, they all tend toward this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both happiness attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. We are all looking for happiness, for joy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. C.S. Lewis said it like this, joy is the serious business of heaven. We're looking for boundless joy. We're looking for a source of joy that won't run dry. We're looking for a place where we can find happiness, where our, the thirst of our soul is quenched forever, where your wonder never dies, where your hunger is always satisfied. And why? Why did Jesus choose to do his first sign at a wedding? Because he wants you to know he is the joy distributor. He is the source of all joy, of your deepest joy, of your deepest longing, the longing of every human heart. He is the source. And then lastly, why the wine? So we know, we've seen the sign that he did, the timing, the context. We understand this wedding is a picture of the fact that God is restoring relationship with us. He's bringing us back to life where that relationship was broken in the Garden of Eden. Jesus has now come. He's like, I am here to restore it. That's why John is saying, the very first sign I'm recording and telling you about is at a wedding. And number three, the wine. Why the wine? Let's look at these verses real quick and then we'll, we'll bring it down the home stretch. John 2, 3 to 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, ma'am, <laughs> what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Don't miss that. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them to the brim. Friends, what does wine represent at a wedding? Especially at this wedding where it had just run out. You see, Jesus isn't talking about the wedding ceremony. He's not talking about the moment where vows are exchanged. 
Jesus is talking about the after party. He's talking about the celebration of the vows that were just exchanged. And if you've ever been to a wedding, after the wedding, what happens is this. Everyone gets together and they party. There's good food, there's dancing, there's joy, right? There's celebration. And in this particular moment, the wine having run out means one thing. Wow, this is about to get really awkward for everyone. The dancing's going to stop. The party's going to be over. The, the parents of the bride are going to be embarrassed and ashamed, and everyone's going to feel that for them. It's going to be like this massive, let's just suck all the joy out of the room, out of the moment. Party is over. And what does Jesus say? It's so important that you see what he says. He says to his mom, he says, what does this have to do with me? Because, hey, my hour has not yet come. All throughout the gospel of John, he says over and over and over again, my hour has not yet come. Until at the very end of his life, John 13, he says, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be lifted up on a cross. What he says to his mom right here is he says, Mom, it's not my time to die yet. My hour has not yet come. But then he chooses to do it anyways. He's saying, I know this is the first of the signs that is going to be recorded in one of the Gospels one day. And this is going to be a picture of the hour that is coming. Friends, think about the very fact that he is using water jars, six stone water jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Before the Jews showed up anywhere at the temple or anywhere, they would wash, they would ceremonially wash anything that was unclean off of them. And here is Jesus saying, fill them up to the brim, all of them. Talking a lot of gallons of wine here. Six of those holding 20 to 30 gallons each. This is excessive, okay? They've already drank all the wine at the party. They've been going, they've been going for it, okay? It's not, I mean, probably one full 30-gallon jar of wine would have done the trick. But Jesus goes, fill them all up to the top. And he turns the water which is normally used for the, the rites of purification to wash away the uncleanness, the sin, before any Jewish person entered anywhere. He turned it into wine. And maybe you remember, and I want to I close with this so the keys can come out. Because maybe you remember the early days of whenever you got something that you really longed for. You received something that you really longed for. You see, what's happening here, what, what I believe is really happening here is this idea of the wine running out is something that we all experience in life. The joy of even the things that you wanted the most is fading. 
The joy of the things that you have worked for all your life, when you attain the mountaintop and you get there, I've talked to people over and over and over again who've, man, I've achieved my dreams, my goals, everything. And they've said to me, man, this was like the best and worst day of my life. And I'm like, I can see why it's the best day. Why is it the worst? Because the question that arises in my heart is, is this all there is? Is this it? I made it, now what? What, you know, what do I have now to live for? What's the point of it all? You see, Jesus could physically raise someone from the dead, but now they gotta live the rest of their life. What's the point of life? He could open the eyes of the blind and yes, you can see and what a miracle and the gratitude incredible, but now what do you do with your sight? How are we called to live? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? Friend, what we have found in everything, the best that this life has to offer is the wine is running out. The joy is fading away. Even the, the things that we look forward to the most. I mean, I'll never forget right out of college. I mean, this was like, this was the begin. This was the rise of the Apple iPod and the iPhone. I mean, those things were on fire. There were, you could only buy them at a few, you know, Apple stores, it felt like, around the country. And you remember these days, like lines around the buildings everywhere to get these products. I'm sure you've seen it. I, there's all these phones for the iPhone, all these ads for the iPhone 15, Titanium Pro Max, you know, better camera for the 10th time in a row. I've got an iPhone 12. And uh, my, my kids are very concerned about this because they know I have a free upgrade right now. I could, I could literally walk into a T-Mobile store tomorrow and get a free iPhone 15, free. And I, I mean, the, the upgrade's been available to Lindsay and I for months now, and they're like, what, what are you guys doing? Go already, get the new ones. You know, and we're like, ah, we did, yeah, we did that like 12 years ago. And yeah, there, I remember the first time I got an iPhone, the first one, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? Like incredible, the apps, it just, you know, kept getting, felt like it kept getting better. But then, you know, about six months later, a year later, honestly, if I'm being honest, like two weeks later, it just kind of, it's a phone, right? Did some more cool things. We're finding out it's done some really horrible things to our brains and our emotions. Um, that's another story for another day. But now I'm on iPhone 12 and iPhone 15 is out and I can go get it. But I, I'm not like setting up a tent and waiting in line at the uh, Roseville Mall Apple store to grab an iPhone 15. And I know an iPhone is not like the best this world has to offer, but let's be honest, you, you spend more time on your phone than you do in your car if we're being honest. And the truth is this, the joy is fading. Even the best this world has to offer, the joy is fading. The best that we can think of, it just isn't going to last. And what, what John is saying here is this, do you know where the joy doesn't fade? Where the thirst is quenched, where the hunger is satisfied, where the longing is satisfied? It's when you receive the washing that Jesus wants to give you, the cleansing that Jesus wants to offer you. The reason 
he turned water to wine at this wedding feast. And the reason it was six 30-gallon stone jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification, the reason that he did this as his first sign to keep the joy going, to keep the party alive, to be the soul and the life and the joy of the party is because he wanted everyone to know that at the end of John's gospel, at the end of every gospel, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees and he is sweating blood and he is staring down the cup of God's wrath the cup of God's wrath when he is staring down the cross and what's coming to him the the punishment for sin and the wrath of God and he knows I'm about to drink this cup of God's wine of the wrath of God so that I can be the one who extends to you the mercy of God so that you can be fully cleansed by the fact that I'm the one who takes upon himself what you deserve. Friends, that's the gospel. And that is why he says to his mom, my hour is not yet come, but it is coming. And there is a moment where, yes, I will Drink the cup of God's wrath. Because God so loved the world that he sent himself in the form of his only son to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And that's why, historically, I know we don't have wine in the cups today. We have juice. But you get the idea. What we do when we remember Jesus, and we're about to take communion together, is we drink the wine, the grape juice that symbolizes his death, his blood that was spilled for us on the, on the cross so that we could be purified by his sacrifice. And we, we take the bread and we remember his body that was broken for us. And friends, today, if you're here and you have never put your faith in Jesus, you've never understood why he came, now you have some context behind why he even did his first miracle because he wanted it to be a picture of what he was ultimately going to pay for us. I want to pray with you because today is an opportunity for you to take a step of faith. You remember what John said at the very beginning of the gospel? He said, Look, I wrote these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and that by believing in him, you would have life. Some of you have been searching for life in all the wrong places, and right now, I want to extend an offer to you of the life of Christ through faith by believing in him. So before we communion with just eyes closed and head bowed, if you have never put your faith in Christ and you want to do so today, I just want to invite you, I want to ask you to, to raise your hand and then I want to lead you in a prayer. And so if that's you today and you're here today and you say, I, I want to put my faith in Christ, please raise your hand high even now and I want to pray with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray together. And when you pray, I want... The prayer has to be from your heart. But just 
I want you to pray something like this from your heart to Jesus. First say, Jesus, thank you. Say, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. In your heart, say to him, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. In your heart, say to him, I believe that three days later you rose from the dead. And that by faith in you, by trusting in you, I can receive the gift of life. Lord, I pray for every person who is in this moment believing in you, putting their faith in you, Lord, that they would experience a life of Christ. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I wanna encourage you, please, we have a gift for you. We'd love to see you at one of our welcome to church tents, welcome tents around the campus. Come and say, hey, we'd love to help you on this journey of faith. For the rest of you, um, let's take communion together in this moment and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.